Well, this June, my wife and I celebrate 22 years of marriage, so we are excited about that. Now, how many of you expected your spouse, when you got married, to be more like you? Show of hands, you said, when I get married, she's going to be just like me, right? Well, one thing I have learned uh, in the 22 years of marriage is that my wife is like this, and I am like this, and that I am very even-keeled, sort of don't get passionate about too many things. I'm sort of, sort of just a straight, steady, kind of even, and my wife Uh, One thing I can say about the blessing of marriage is that my wife causes me to be a better person than I am because she causes me to feel life uh, in a way that I normally would not feel. I'm kind of a... (laughs) We don't want to say the word boring, but, (laughs) but kind of boring. And so my wife uh, brings a lot of excitement uh, to my life that way. You know, recently when I, the the one thing I am uh, passionate about, though, is when I watch TV on Sunday mornings, uh, and I I don't get to stay home Sunday very often, but when I had my back surgery recently, I got to watch Sunday morning TV, and so I thought, well, let's see what's happening in the world of Christianity out there. And so I clicked on the TV, And that got my passions up like nothing else in life, let me tell you. And my wife can testify, there are a few things that cause me to sort of skyrocket, and that's one of them, is that when I see people mistreating, mishandling, abusing the Word of God all over the place, it drives me insane. And so, um, one thing in particular is the mishandling of the subject of the cross of Christ. It is one of the things that I am most passionate about in life. If I had to put my finger on any one thing, um, discipleship and the cost of being a disciple and the cross of Christ, these are things that get my blood going. And so, unfortunately, in our day, the cross has been um, substantially watered down, if I could say it that way. It has been trivialized. It's been um, mystified, it's been marketed, the whole gamut. It has just been abused like no other doctrine in our time, I believe. Uh, I wanted to set our course this morning, and, and I want to straighten out or clear up what it means to bear one's cross. We hear it all the time, you just need to take up your cross and bear it, right? You need to bear your cross. Uh, What does it mean to bear one's cross? If somebody asked you, would you be able to answer that question? And so this morning I hope to clear that up, and I thought what I would do is start out by giving you a quote here by John MacArthur, and I think it'll kind of set us on our course for the morning. Slide. (laughs) Oh, that's the last part of it. Where's the rest of it? Okay, I'm going to read the whole thing here. That's not the whole, that's not the whole thing. So I'll read it. Taking up one's cross is not some mystical level of selfless, deeper spiritual life, in quotes, that only the religious elite can hope to achieve. 
nor is it the common trials and hardships that all persons experience sometime in life. A cross is not having an unsaved husband, a nagging wife, a domineering mother-in-law, nor is it having a physical handicap or suffering from an incurable disease. To take up one's cross is simply to be willing to pay any price for Christ's sake. It is the willingness to endure shame, embarrassment, reproach, rejection, persecution, and even martyrdom for his sake. That sort of clears up any misunderstanding, any wrong notions about what it means to bear one's cross. And so this week, uh, kind of on that track, we are going to finish looking at the cross from three different angles uh, so that we might understand and appreciate it in all of its fullness. The cross has broad implications across the board in theology. It is where the the mercy and the kindness and the love of God intersect with his, his justice and his wrath. It is the intersection of theology, and so we want to understand it in all of its fullness this morning. So I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 16 if you're not there already, and we are just going to pick up the reading from verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, that this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds." These are some of the most pivotal verses, I think, and as we said last week, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this as sort of a pivotal turning point. This introduces, if you will, the rest of the Gospels. This, from this point on, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He's going to give his life. He's going to die. And any who would be his followers, he says, hey, take up your cross and follow me. Here's where we're going. You want to come along? you really a follower of Christ, then take up your cross and follow me. And from this point on, it's, it's sort of right to the cross. It's right to Jerusalem. He's going to die. He's going to give his life for his people. Now, last week, uh, we just looked at verse 21, and we talked about uh, the, the indications of the cross, and we saw that there, that Jesus... Um, had to do four things. Uh, the verb there, 
uh, is day in the Greek, and it means it must happen. It's necessary. It has to happen. There's no way around it. It's divine necessity. Four things had to take place, and that was that Jesus had to go to Jerusalem uh, because that is the city that kills the prophets, and Jesus is a prophet, so he has to go to Jerusalem. He had to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. They represent the leadership of the nation, and so Jesus had to be publicly condemned by them. He had to be sort of the Supreme Court, publicly condemned by them and rejected uh, as the leadership of the nation. He had to be killed as our substitute. He had to, uh, his body had to be killed so that God's wrath would be poured out on him instead of us. And he had to be raised on the third day. And as we said last week, that was the, the first fruits of our resurrection. It was the vindication of his righteousness. He was guiltless, and that's why death could not hold him. So this week, we want to look at the cross from two additional angles. And the second angle is the inclinations against it. You see it there in verses 22 and 23. Uh, Peter's first response to hearing that the Messiah has to go to Jerusalem, has to suffer, has to die, and has to be raised is, no way. Not you, Jesus. That will never happen to you. And uh, it's really kind of ironic, you know, that uh, Jesus has just said this must happen, and Jesus says, not if I have anything to do with it. Uh, This conversation is really kind of a stark contrast to Peter's confession back up in 16 and 19. You see that? Remember what Peter just said. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon. Uh, You get it. You get it, uh, and nobody else gets it. And and, and you're the rock. Uh, Your confession is the rock that the church is going to be built on. Uh, So we go from being a rock to being a stumbling block. (laughs) We go from a great confession of Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, to, oh no, you're not going to die. You see the sharp contrast there? I don't think it's easy to imagine a sharper contrast possible in a conversation. (laughs) It goes from one extreme, one polar extreme to the other. Blessed are you. Get behind me, Satan. Um. It's, it's really, uh, one writer, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce said, one minute Peter is speaking under inspiration from heaven, now he's under inspiration from the opposite quarter. It, it's interesting, the, the language here, I, I want to pick apart the language a little, just so you get a feel. If, if you were to watch this on screen, this is what this would look like. Um, Matthew says Peter took Jesus aside. Uh, normally you have an active or a passive verb, right? Something is, either the subject is doing the action or it's being done to him, right? Here it's the middle voice, which means that uh, uh, the subject sort of experiences some benefit from the action. He's, he's a part of it. And in other words, what it says here, literally, is he took Jesus to himself. That's the idea here. He didn't just pull him aside. He took him to himself. And it's almost as if uh, Peter grabs Jesus' arm and he pulls him over and says, Jesus, no, no, not you. This is not going to happen to you, right? And it says he rebuked him. Uh, 
he began to rebuke him. And, and the word rebuke carries the idea of, um, if you see it other places in Scripture, it's the idea of reprimanding or scolding, um, disapproving, even denouncing somebody. And so you get, you get the picture here. Peter is sort of jerking Jesus aside, and he's, he's telling him, no, this is not going to happen to you. What are you, crazy? Now, uh, importantly, I should say this. This, this word, rebuke, uh, in particular, does not convey a result in the person being rebuked. So, in other words, Peter is saying these things, but it's not really affecting Jesus. He's not, like, convicted of sin or anything like that. It's just Peter's arrogance speaking down to Christ. And he says, literally, uh, mercy to you, Lord. God forbid it. Uh, God have mercy on you. Uh, the word is haleos in the Greek. It's, it's literally the word mercy. May God be merciful to you. Obviously, Peter does not understand Jesus' Messiahship, right? If, if you read your Old Testament, Isaiah 53, we know that the Messiah has to what? He has to suffer and he has to die on behalf of the nation. And Peter has a wrong view in his mind. He thinks that the Christ is going to reign supreme and that he's going to reign with him. Well, he is, but not till he suffers first. Not till he suffers first. So, again, Jesus has just finished saying, Messiah must suffer, he must die, and he must be raised again, and Peter says, God forbid it. It's, it's probably one of the most arrogant statements in the New Testament. And then he goes on to say, this is never going to happen to you. This is in the... In the original language, there's a strong double negative. negative. Double negatives are bad in English, but in Greek they convey something. And here he's saying, no way, no how. Never, ever is this going to happen to you. And, and the, the grammatical construction here is really kind of interesting. It, it's not a future verb. He's not saying this will never happen to you. He's saying... Uh, it will never, ever happen to you because I won't let it. He, he's sort of taking this on himself, and he's saying, listen, uh, Jesus, if I have anything to do with this, this is not going to happen to you. And God has, uh, Jesus has just said, it has to happen. And he says, oh, no, it doesn't. He's arguing with Jesus. And I, I thought, well, Peter must really be enlightened here, right? I, I mean, his plan is clearly better than God's plan, don't you think? I mean, Jesus doesn't understand the implications of what he's saying. Obviously, uh, Peter knows more than God at this point. What a dangerous place to be, huh? What a dangerous place to be in your arrogance thinking that you somehow know better than God does. So how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 23. 
he turns to Peter and he says in a kind voice, no, no, he sharply, this is probably one of the sharpest rebukes in the New Testament, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are setting your mind on God's interests, uh, not on God's interests, but on man's. So, uh, whose rebuke do you think carried more weight, Jesus or Peter? In verse 22, back up to verse 22, it says that Peter began, do you see that? Peter began to rebuke Jesus. In fact, the grammar here tells us that word began is very emphatic. He started trying to rebuke Jesus is the idea, but Jesus cut him off. He didn't even get to finish what he was saying. Yeah, he began to rebuke Jesus, but he never finished what he started. Uh, he crossed a line, and Jesus cut him off and put him in his place. Uh, he forgot who he was talking to. He was talking to the Messiah, God incarnate, and rebuking him. <laughs> and so Jesus puts him in his place. He cuts him off. I think this is a more stinging rebuke than we see over in Matthew 23, right? When Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the leadership of Israel, he calls them hypocrites and whitewashed tombstones, etc., etc. Here, he's calling Peter Satan. I, I think this is a more stinging rebuke, and, and he literally says the same thing. Go back to Matthew 4.10. He literally says the same thing to him that he said to Satan. Uh, start in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This phrase, go, Satan, it's the same thing. Get behind me, Satan. Get away from me. Get, get out of my sight is the idea. And so he's telling, um, he's telling Peter, be gone. Get out of my sight. Are you kidding me? You're a stumbling block to me. You're, you're causing me to be tempted to avoid the very thing that I must do. I have to go to the cross, and you're trying to stop me. So he calls him Satan. He calls him a stumbling block, which is a scandal on. It's, it's a trap. You're a trap to me. You're an enticement. You're a temptation for me to skip the cross. And I have to go to the cross. Remember, Satan wanted Jesus to take the easy way out. He wanted him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. And Jesus said, get out of my sight. And, and here he says the same thing to Peter. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but your own. It is much better for Jesus to die on the cross. It's necessary for him to die on the cross. Without it, Peter's eternal soul is in jeopardy. Jesus has to go to the cross. And he says, it's, it's like, you're serving Satan's purposes, not God's 
if you want me to skip the cross. I have to go to the cross. I have to go to the cross or nobody gets saved. Jesus knows it's his destiny. He has to go. It reminds me of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? How many of you watch that show? Okay, so the, it, it ratchets up, you know, and every time you answer a question right, it goes to the next bracket of money, and you keep going up until, you know, the questions get harder. The first questions are really stupid and lame, but it gets harder as you get to the top. So it's like Peter has been answering the questions right, and then all of a sudden he gets it completely wrong and he loses the million bucks, right? It's like, it's like, are you kidding me? One minute you're saying, yes, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And the next minute you're saying, no, never. You can't do this. He completely, <clears throat> wrong answer, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. And I think there's just a couple of lessons here for us. And, and one is that, you know, it ought to be sobering to us as humanoids, that, that we can be so right one minute and so incredibly wrong the next, right? I mean, this, this should be sobering for us to see this in Peter. Just a few verses before, he gets the answer totally right. Here, totally wrong. Uh, the other one is, you know, I think as believers, we really need to not find ourselves fighting against the will of God. Now, I know this is a historically bound context, and, and Peter is trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross, but you know, it does translate to us by way of application that God's Word says certain things that we're supposed to do and that are supposed to happen in our lives, and we can find ourselves in a place where we're fighting against the will of God. This is the will of God that Jesus go to the cross and die. And there are other places in the scriptures that tell us, point blank, this is God's will for you. And we can, we can reject that, we can disobey, we, we can live our lives in disobedience, but it's not the place you want to find yourself, beloved, fighting against the will of God. So we have seen the, the indications of the cross. We've seen the inclinations against the cross. And the third angle that I wanted to look at it with you this morning is the implications of the cross. And this is really what we're talking about here is the cost of discipleship, right? It costs to be a disciple of Christ. Verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to follow me or to come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross, and follow me. And as I said, the cross has, if I could say it this way, across-the-board implications uh, for any who would call themselves a disciple or a follower of Christ. There are, the implications are far and wide for you if you want to follow Christ. And, and here in the text, we see that if Messiah, who is God incarnate, God in the flesh, glory clothed in humanity, is going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. If suffering is going to precede glory, then the same implications are there for believers. You understand that? Suffering precedes glory. 
And that thought process needs to flow through this entire text here. Um, any who would follow Christ have to be of the same mindset. They ought to be willing to suffer in order to gain glory. Now, even though Jesus is still addressing his disciples, notice that he broadens the discussion here in verse 24 to anyone. Okay, so now it's not just specifically the disciples. Now it's, hey, anyone who wants to follow me, there's three conditions, right? Quid pro quo. Here are the conditions. And look at the text. What are they? Self-denial. Take up the cross and follow. You see that? Three conditions. Now, uh, flip over to Luke 9.23, and I want to show you something. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What do you notice addition there? The word daily, right? So he's not talking about a literal cross. If you're crucified, you don't pick up your cross the next day, right? So what is he talking about? Well, uh, the first, uh, the idea here is discipleship, and the first two conditions of self-denial and taking up the cross are parallel terms. And when I mean parallel, that means they're kind of the same idea. They're the same idea. And so I'm going to camp on this word, taking up your cross daily here, this phrase here. Let me, let me pick this up for a minute. It's a metaphor for submitting to the will of God wherever it may lead. Uh, one commentator said that, and I like it. Now, historically, the whole act of crucifixion was a, a public crushing of an individual who was rebelling against Rome's authority. So uh, Jesus was assumed to be a rebel, and so they, they go through the whole process of, of beating them, torturing them, having them publicly humiliated by carrying their cross to the place where they're going to be executed so that a person's last act on this earth as a living being is basically that they're forced to submit to Rome's authority. That's what crucifixion was for. Uh, a rebel was forced to submit to Rome's authority against their will. They were publicly crucified. They were squashed. So in this context, Peter is resisting the will of God. And so um, he's fighting, if you will, against God's will by by trying to stop the crucifixion of Christ. And so Jesus says, uh, and the, he's telling Peter and the other disciples, stop or cease fighting against the will of God, uh, die to self, and submit to God's will daily. You see the connection? Stop rebelling against that authority which was once that's over you. Stop rebelling against them and come under submission to them is the idea. So for us who are in rebellion to our king, 
We need to stop rebelling against his will, come under submission to him, die to self, self-denial daily, and, and follow after Christ. That's the idea. When it, when it talks about taking up your cross daily, that's the idea. It's, it's to cease struggling against God's will and to submit to him, the, the king who you were formerly in rebellion against. As a result, as you do that, you will be, third condition, following Jesus. Now, this, this third condition of following, um, I had Bernie read First Peter, and I, I'd like to turn you over there again. First Peter, let's look at chapter 2 for a moment. Uh, submission is one of the biggest themes in the New Testament for a believer. Submission to the will of God. Uh, whether you're a slave or whether you're free, it doesn't matter because you're free in Christ. So wherever you find yourself in life, whatever station you find yourself, you need to submit to God's authority through that person who's over you. Uh, this, is, this is a word to the wise here, beloved. The, submission is a huge issue of discipleship. We have to submit to the will of God. And so 1 Peter 2, uh, look at verse 13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do right. For such, here it is, such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What's the will of God? Speak to me. Submit. Submit to those who are in authority. That is the will of God. As you come under submission, you are no longer rebelling against God who is your king and who is operating through that person over you. Uh, verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Uh, the whole rest of the thing, uh, this passage talks about Christ coming under um, God's plan for him. He's submitting to God and allowing God to be the one to work out the details. He went silently to the cross because he was able to submit himself to God's purposes in it. And then chapter 3, it just picks up on that theme. Wives who are married to an unbelieving husband, what are you supposed to do? Submit. Submit. Because in being submissive, it says, uh, verse 5, uh, you'll, you'll win them over. It's not a promise, but this is what it means to be an obedient follower of Christ. In the same way, husbands, uh, honor your wives. Honor your wives. Love them. Uh, verses 8 to 12. Uh, that's the only way we can give blessings in return for evil. Is that We understand that God is ruling over the situation. He's in authority. So, Submission. Uh, let me put up this quote here by John Piper. Do, do we have that? 
Christ died to save us from hell, but not to save us from the cross. He died so that we, would be, we could be glorified, but not to keep us from being crucified. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. For the Christian, the cross of Christ is not merely a past place of substitution. It is also a present place of daily execution. I thought that was helpful. I thought that really kind of summed up Jesus' words here. So then Jesus takes this challenge and he backs it up with three lines of argumentation. You see the next three verses. Go back to Matthew. The next three verses sort of pile up the logic behind what Jesus is saying. And each one of the verses starts with the word for. For, for, for. This means he's, he's furthering his argumentation. He's explaining it. These are the becauses, right? Three lines of logic here which warrants such submission to God. And these three reasons are essentially what drive the cost of discipleship home in a more poignant way. All three reasons, you should realize, are they're future-oriented, they're eschatological, meaning that the payoff comes in the end times, not in the here and now. And uh, I've had a lot of time to think about this over the last week, and I, let me ask you a question this morning. What would you give in exchange for your eternal soul? Is there anything on this planet that you would exchange for your eternal soul? I couldn't think of any. And, and the point is, coming off of the resurrection, Jesus has just said the Son of Man is going to be raised. He has to be raised, right? Which means there's an afterlife coming. If Jesus is going to be raised and we're going to be raised, then that means, beloved, there's an afterlife. And here's the trade-off. What are you willing to give in this life in order to have that life then? And all three lines of logic here are built upon that premise. There is going to be an afterlife, and the Son of Man is going to come to judge, and when he does, what are you willing to give or pay in order to, to have life then. Okay? And that's, I mean, this is what we're talking about here. And all three basically answer the question, is it worth it to follow Jesus? Is it worth it? Verse 25, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Mark 8.35 adds a little phrase here, uh, and the Gospels. Whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake and the Gospels will find it. It's interesting. He, he elevates the Gospel uh, to the same level as Christ himself. And this... The first line of logic is really a paradox. Uh, any person at all who sets their will on saving their own life, and the word here is suke in the Greek, psyche, uh, whoever wishes to save their life now or wills to do that in the present, uh, the result will be that they will lose their life in the end. 
That's what he's saying. You try to, you try to save your life now, and the paradox is you're going to lose it later. And losing it now will result in finding it or having eternal life later. See that? In other words, if you set your will on saving your life now, it's self-defeating. Because you'll end up losing it later. It's self-defeating. Uh, turn over to Matthew 10:38 real quick. Again, strong words here. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now, back to Matthew 16. The interesting thing here in Matthew 16 is Jesus includes the word wishes. Whoever wishes to save his life now. And so what he's talking about here are the selfish motives behind trying to save your own life. This tips us off, Jesus. He's talking about selfish motives. And, and what he's saying is it, it really means that those who recognize Jesus as Lord, they, they will relinquish their control and their authority over their own lives. They'll relinquish it to the one who has real authority, real control. And those who recognize that realize that, as I said, the joys and the sorrows of this life are nothing in comparison to what awaits in eternity. Right? If you believe in an afterlife, beloved, if you believe that there's a place to go after you die, then you're going to be thinking about that more than you're going to be thinking about this. This is going to end. This is temporal. What are you going to pay? What are you going to give now in order to have life then? That is the question. And without surrendering your present life to Christ, you cannot have eternal life with him. Jesus says, if you don't surrender your life, you're not worthy of me. One more quote up here. This is by uh, James Boyce, and I want you to notice this was written nearly 30 years ago. And how much more, ask yourself, how much more have things changed? He says there's a defect, even a fatal defect, in the life of the Church of Christ in the 20th century, and that is a lack of true discipleship. For the genuine Christian, discipleship means forsaking everything to follow Christ. But for many of today's supposed Christians, perhaps the majority, it is the case that while there is much talk about Christ, and even much furious activity that is supposed to be done in his name, there is actually very little following of Christ himself. And this means that in some circles at least, there is very little genuine Christianity. Many who fervently call him Lord, Lord, are not Christians. This is a strong statement, huh? 
A lot of activities can be done, a lot of busyness for the, what people say is, you know, for Jesus' sake. But are they actually following him? That's the question. And I would say, you know, that was written 30 years ago. Would you say it's worse now? I would. And notice Jesus continues his logic with a couple more questions just to drive the point home. Another for statement here. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? How valuable is your soul in comparison to anything else in this world? That's really the material point, right? Or, if you like, the immaterial point. Man's soul is the immaterial part of him. There is the material part, which is his body, and the immaterial part. What will you give in exchange for the immaterial part of you? The part that goes on in eternity. And, and notice the contrast here in verse 26 uh, in these questions. There's, there's profit and gain versus forfeiture. So if you're a banker or you like banking terms, there's a ratio here, profit-loss ratio versus, uh, you know, uh, uh, profit and gain, I mean, versus what you'll lose. Um, and, and what in this material world will you give in exchange for your eternal soul? Is there anything of more value to you than your soul? What are you willing to bargain for it? Now, interestingly, the words... Life and soul are both the same words, but they've changed the interpretation here when you go from verse 25 to 26. See that? They're both the word suke, life and soul. Here the translators switch from the physical realm to the spiritual realm because they understand Jesus is talking about the end times. I think it's one, one writer said a, a good, probably, um, understanding of this, it might be a little too sharp of a contrast to go from life to soul, so he says your very self. Maybe that's the idea. What would you give in exchange for your very self? But it's still speaking about the end times. So he's talking about the eternal loss of your soul, your life, yourself. I'll put it in today's terms, your selfie, <laughs> right? What would you give in exchange for your selfie? Whatever terminology you use, uh, the point is that it's a bad deal because there's nothing more valuable than your eternal soul. Whatever terminology you put it in, it's a bad deal. And my daughter likes Greek mythology, so I thought of her when I was coming up with this. And so the Greeks believed that they could buy their way across the river Styx, right? They would, they would take a gold coin to their grave with them because they thought that if they entered the afterlife with a gold coin and they got to the river Styx, which separated them from, from the physical realm to the eternal realm, that they could pay the boat, whatever you call them, captain or pilot or dude, <laughs> Uh, the guy that, that, uh, that uh, his C-H-A-R-O-N, I think is pronounced Charon, 
but I'm not sure. Uh, he's the guy that controlled the boat. And if you gave him a gold coin, he'd give you a ride across the river Styx. You could bribe your way across. That's the point. You could bribe or pay your way across. Um, let me just say this. Do you think that works? Because when you die, your eternal soul goes, but where does the gold coin go? It stays behind, beloved. Uh, and no amount of worldly treasure, no amount of accumulation of wealth, no mass of wealth will ever buy your way into glory. And nothing, nothing in this world, nothing you currently possess, nothing you will ever come into possession of will ever be enough to compensate for the loss of your eternal soul. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. You take behind what's door, door, what's, what lies behind door number one or door number two. Door number two, eternal life. Door number one, a new car. <laughs> Is that a good trade-off? No. There, there is nothing I can think of um, that would be a good trade-off. Verse 27, continuing the line of logic here, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Again, based on the resurrection, Jesus is already talking about his second coming now. And he's saying, I'm going to come back with my angels, and I'm going to judge the world. How valuable is your soul? Notice uh, it says he's returning in the glory of his Father with his angels. And I, I believe the idea here is judgment, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But the Father's glory, here's the point, the Father's glory will be a, with him upon his return, and the angels will be there to enhance his glory and to do his bidding. And, and understand the grammar here, it says that the angels are his, they're Christ's. The phrase, uh, he's going to come, is actually not a future verb like you would think it is. It's actually separated out, and there's an emphatic word at the front of this sentence that says he's about to come. It's two separate verbs that are put together, and the idea here is that Jesus is about to come. And he hasn't even died yet, and he's already thinking in terms of his second coming. This is, this is the first intimation of his second coming, and, and it's going to be sudden. It's going to be sudden. Now, if you look at the text, it's an obvious claim to his deity, Right? He is so far above the angels that they're his. He controls them. They do his bidding. They accompany him in the end times to gather the elect, his elect. And when he returns to establish his kingdom, he's bringing an army of angels with him. They do his bidding and they enhance his glory. Now, there's a difference of opinion on whether verse 27 is, is speaking of uh, judgment, or if it's speaking of reward. 
And so I piled up the commentaries and the one, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I th let me just tell you, for, for Jesus and any who would follow him, there is a significant point here that you want to take away in terms of reward. I think it's true. There is reward in this passage. And that is the idea that Messiah's suffering is going to be followed by his glory. And so for anybody who's going to be a follower of Christ, who's going to endure suffering, they can be assured that what awaits them is glory. So that is the reward, and I think that theme is littered throughout the New Testament. And I think, in terms of context, it's probably a great comfort to his followers that he's going to die, but he's going to be raised, and they're going to suffer, but they're going to be raised as well, and that there will be glory that awaits them. That is true. Um, I think there is reward in the verse, but while it's true that God does reward believers, I'm not persuaded that's primarily what's being talked about here. I believe he's talking about repaying or recompensing the wicked for their rejection of their one and only hope of salvation. He's been talking about the eternal soul. What will you give in exchange for it? What are you willing to pay? And now he's talking about recompensing those based upon their deeds. And I think primarily he's talking about judgment because the language, uh, we don't have time to go there, but Psalm 62, 12, write that down and look at it later. The language is the same that is used of God over in the Psalms of him recompensing the wicked for their evil deeds. And notice he says, according to each one's deeds. Uh, each one who has exchanged their souls for the, for the vain things of this world and the empty pleasures will be recompensed for their choice. The word deeds, if, if you look at it in the original, is actually a singular word. It's, it's not plural. It's not deeds, it's deed. And the idea is it's looking at a, a person's life and everything they've done holistically. Their whole life is going to be taken in one snapshot and they'll be judged based on that. And it just, again, ratchets up the, the importance of saving your soul. What are you willing to do or pay to save your soul? Either way you take it, Christ will be the one to settle the accounts when he comes. And then it's going to be too late to change your mind. That's the point. What will you give now to have that later? I couldn't help but think of Romans 6.23. I'll just end with this here. Romans 6.23. It's a familiar verse to most of us. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the fair wages, if you will, the, the recompense for sin is what? It's death. It's the loss of your eternal soul. But the free gift of God on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone is eternal life with God and His Son. It's free. It's a free gift that's acquired by faith. If you want life then, it means life with Christ 
now by faith. So how valuable is your soul to you? We've seen the cross from three different angles, the, the indications of it in the Scriptures, the, the inclinations against it by Peter, the implications of it for discipleship. The way of the cross is a difficult path, beloved. It's a difficult path, but it leads to eternal life. The price of admission is high. The cost is high. It's costly to be a follower of Christ, but it's the best deal in town. Right? It's the best deal in town by any reckoning. And what are you willing to pay to preserve your soul? You know, people follow each other on Twitter now, right? That's not the following that we're talking about here. It's not following Jesus like you follow somebody on Twitter. This is your whole life, following his example, following after him, taking up your cross and dying to yourself daily and submitting to God's authority. Following Jesus in faith and submission as your only Lord and your risen King. Will you do that in order to save your soul? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we're thankful for the words of Christ here and and for this dialogue which really kind of opens our eyes to the need for us to be followers of Christ in this life. Father, there is nothing that we can offer you, nothing we can give to you other than our faith in Christ. And so this morning, I pray that you would help us to commit wholly to following him. Father, may we submit to our Lord and our King. May we, may we recognize that Christ is the ruler over our lives. And may we give ourselves to Him fully in order that we might attain to eternal life with you and your Son later. Lord, we are so grateful for the work that you've done in our heart. We're so grateful for the gospel of Christ. We're so grateful, Father, that you have showered mercy upon us and allowed us to believe. Father, please work in us through your word now. Convince us of these truths and help us to be genuine followers of Christ. We pray it for his sake. Amen.